Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In recent times, there's been a lot of chatter in the Facebook group around frequent fly points, Qantas points, credit cards, and all that stuff. Enough to kind of make me go, oh, hang on, let's re-chat about this because I don't want you to get swept up in the hype. I don't want you to get swept up in, you know, the glamour of flying business class free for points and all that stuff when realistically, it just doesn't happen for the majority of people. And we'll get into the why and how you can maybe look to get Qantas points when you don't have a credit card and how the whole system works and also what's the best use of that money. So we'll talk about that again. But remember, we can't do this Tuesday episode without the help from Sharesies. With the Sharesies platform, you can now turn spare change into money for investing with their new roundups feature suited to you. Time to flip your spending habit into an investing one. By linking your bank account to the Sharesies platform and turning on roundups, you can round up extra dollars and cents from your daily spend to hit your investing goals sooner. So if you love the idea of pancakes, pizza, or petrol contributing to your portfolio, get your Roundups tally growing today. Sign up to the Sharesies platform using the exclusive promo code MMM and get $10 added to your account. All investing involves risks, T's and C's and fees apply. Thanks, Sharesies. I actually, this is off script, but I love the Roundup feature because you're buying the stuff anyway and you don't really notice that if you spend... $9.80, you don't notice that 20 cents that leaves your account. So that's awesome. Thanks, Sharesies, for supporting the podcast. My name's Glenn James. You're listening to My Millennial Money. I'm joined today by John Pigeon from My Millennial Property. Let's get into this. John, what's your relationship like with this whole credit card frequent flyer points, you know, chasing points and all that stuff. Yeah, I'd have to say it's not a bad relationship, Glenn. I think it's, I have a business Amex card and expenses go on that that are pretty well controlled. We don't go searching for points to and spend money just to get points. But personally, we don't really, well, we don't delve into it. Um, we have had numerous conversations and it continues to pop up in our dinner conversation um, over over a nice meal. But I think, yeah, it's just something that we don't really entertain. We, we've I've done it before when I was wild and fancy and single, but mm. common sense has prevailed and I don't really attack it too much. What about you? Yeah, well, I, I'll get to me and what I do, but I just want to read a question here from Leanna in the Facebook group. How does one accrue frequent flyer points without a credit card? besides the obvious everyday rewards and flyby. So you've probably seen it lately, John, like you might see something advertised or a restaurant or furniture store or other even investment platforms. I don't think superhero do it 
they will give you Qantas points for spending money with them. Have you seen that? Mm, I have, yeah. And, and I think that was something that, again, the conversation popped up because of marketing such as that. And, and obviously the cost of groceries is another one that has mm. uh, raised its head. So are you aware, like just in a personal John Pigeon vibe, of how that whole system works? Uh, no. No. And, and that's why I just wanted to have a bit of a chat around this today. So effectively... What you could do, John, as a business, you can sign up to the Qantas Frequent Flyer Point Rewards Program as a business, right? And buy Qantas points. So if someone books a clarity call with you, you could legitimately advertise, get one Qantas point for $1 spent when you pay for anything at Solvair Wealth. And, sure. and that is a, it's a bit of a marketing thing that businesses do because it, things, oh, hang on, it might tip me over the line for spending money with that business because I can get the points. And that doesn't mean you have to have a credit card. So you could just walk in, yep, here's my $350 for a clarity call. You get their surname and their Qantas number. And then in the back end, once they're paid for it, you process that and you're paid for those points and then they receive them. Yeah, so uh, that concept is clear. I suppose the sure. where from a marketing point of view that that it gets me is well, okay, Qantas, I don't know, HSBC say, look, sign up, get this platinum credit card, and get fifty thousand Qantas points straight away. Yeah, if you spend X within three months. So the same thing, like HSBC are probably buying those Qantas points. Or, so they're buying them for how much? They're negotiated. I'm not sure. I don't know if it would be dollar for dollar. But um, either way, it is just a hook. And because, and this is the thing, like on balance in society, when people get their mitts on a credit card, they won't pay it off in time. And, you know, HSBC or insert your credit card provider here will end up making money from interest from you. Now, another way that cards make money, remember a couple of years ago, you go to the local cafe and you buy a latte and John pays $4.50 for his latte, right? In the background, the business pays, it could be a 0.25, 0.35% fee to the card issuer for using that feature, right? So that's another way the banks make money on the actual transactions at the counter. Now, what's happening now, because the cost of living is so savage, even for small businesses, there's a cafe I go to now when I go and pay at the counter of $4.50 a latte, it's $4.72 or whatever that is. So, a lot of small businesses are passing that transaction cost on to the consumer. So, that's another way how card manufacturers make money. And to go one step further, this is how wild the world is, Banks and card manufacturers also pay Apple to use their ecosystem. And there's a big thing like Apple, just from the Australian market, I think in one year made like $100 million or something like that. There was a bit in the media of it, on it a while ago. So Apple are making money. So, And this is the whole thing, right? Like I remember when Apple Pay first came out, there were a lot of banks that weren't on that because there's a cost involved there's security and all that stuff. Now, slowly, most people are ending up on the Apple, you know, Apple Pay, and it's probably the same with the Android stuff. 
but it's just another thing. It's a racket with Apple. That is. And if they're not on it, they're actually losing business. Exactly. Um, and then that kind of feeds into the whole supply chain or the chain of costs associated when you spend money at the counter. So now yeah. when you spend $4.50 at the counter for your coffee, you're paying an extra few cents that the retailer isn't carrying anymore. Yeah. They're like, no, you yeah. can pay for that. And then also in the background, the bank is probably paying out of that split Apple if you've used the Apple function. It's wild. It is. And, and do you find that even more so, it, it, it's happening more often there where you, you charge $4.50 but you end up, your transaction is like $4.62. It, yep. It's happening at more and more places, isn't it? It is because, you know, the technology is allowing those costs to be split out and transferred onto the customer. We're back in the day, you know, when people had those manual FPOS machines where they would enter the number. And I still remember a funny story at KFC a million years ago. Like it was like $12.90 for my Twister combo or something. And the, the young girl there, she pressed it wrong. It was like, it came up $1.20. And I'm like, oh, you missed a zero or something. <laughs> it wasn't $12, it was $1.20. She's like, oh, I don't even care. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's like, <laughs> not my company. Yeah, cancel it and fix it. But yeah. yeah, so now the technology and the tablets and all that, the cafes uses, there's a function, yep, tick, pass on the transaction cost. So it's it's very interesting landscape. And this all kind of just ties into the points and the incentives and what businesses are doing to attract customers. In my In an investment property that I have, just a couple of months ago, I between tenants, I put new carpet in there and I went to a local carpet manufacturer and I think it was $6,000 for the three-bedroom townhouse, two kind of living rooms, upstairs and downstairs, all that, like full house carpeted. They gave me Qantas points. So I, I, I didn't go there, but a carpet manufacturer because people spend thousands of dollars, right? And if I paid with a credit card that had points per spend, you could actually double up. So you could spend six grand on your credit card, get the 6,000 Qantas points for that. And then the company will give you 6,000 points. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's an incentive and all this stuff is just kind of honey for flies to entice you to, to be involved in that world. So to Leanna's question, how does one accrue frequent fly points without a credit card? Well, it's going to be one dependent on companies that do those enticing honey things for flies. Number one, um, that's kind of all I can think of. Can you think of any other ways, John? No, look, it's um, you, you mentioned companies producing points of their own. Essentially, if that's <laughs> the case, they could do it with a debit card. It's just a simple transaction, isn't it? So you don't necessarily need a credit card in that instance, but the credit cards, the big juicy ones. That's right. And that's why on the proviso that, you know, if I rock up to this carpet place, if I pay with my debit card or with literally cash, as long as I've paid them, they'll give me the Qantas points because they've used it as a marketing tool. So I don't yeah. need a credit card. And a lot of trades are actually carrying around their, their square or whatever these mm. uh, bizos to, to, so that they get paid because otherwise they might be 30 days and chasing up payments and everywhere else. So they're actually on the job site at people's homes with these facilities to pay right there and then. Yeah, totally. But it could just be one of those enticing things to get a purchaser over the line. Like if, for example, I was looking at two carpet places, 
and one they were kind of the same price and I was, you know, a bit greedy for points. One gave me points. Well, you'd probably go with the one that would give you the 6,000 points for doing nothing. Totally. But So is it, just on a side note, how easy is it for a business to set up points? I don't know. Let's just, let's do a live Google. Should we do a live Google? Let's do it. Uh, set up Qantas points as a business. Right, yeah, there was, there's nothing that's coming up that's straightforward as a website thing, but mm. I'm just on some forum and someone's like, how do I offer frequent flyer points to my clients? Hi, I'm currently a building business website and would like to offer my clients the ability to accrue ongoing frequent flyer points by purchasing our products. Does anyone know where I would approach uh, to set up such a program? And someone was like, uh, you can contact Qantas and there's a business development manager Right. So, yeah, they, I just could, from a quick Google, mm. uh, it might be on the Qantas Business Rewards website. But just on that, and I don't want to spend the whole episode talking about this, but I think it's interesting for people to understand how this system works. The Qantas Business Rewards, and Virgin have one as well, as a business owner, so Simo Interactive, our business, we're a member of Qantas Business Rewards. Now, the reason we are is... JP can log in and book flights for the whole team in one backend portal. Like it's not the normal yep. Qantas website. So that's just so efficient just to have that feature when you've got a team that travel around. Mm. Now, we as a business, we also have a Qantas business Amex card that's owned by the company that's used for business expenses, but I do not use it for personal stuff. Like I don't, I don't care enough for chasing points. Like I don't want to get caught up in this, you know, all I do is live for points. The, the racket. The, yeah, well, like the, the only re- – like I like free money like the next person, but I just want to live my life and, you know, if I'm, if I'm spending $60 at Woolworths or $100 yeah. at Woolworths or 100 points, whatever, don't actually care. Yeah. But the advantage for my business by using this card, and it's technically not a credit card, everyone. It's a, um, a charge card, but – and there's like no set limit – but the advantage is, so Jess and Rach have their own Qantas Simo card. So when they pay stuff for the business, we can just log in easily on the statement and see who paid for what. Mm. And it's so easy to issue cards to employees. I'm in the process of issuing another one to another employee at the moment. Where like with our business banking with ANZ, it took months and Jess had to go into a branch and sign up as a customer yeah. of ANZ. Like, it's just a nightmare. And then yeah. there would be transactions in my ANZ business account. I'm like, what's there, $123? What the hell? And I'm like, so it's just easy for us. Yeah, it's assigned and uh, and it's easy to detect fraud. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> with the Qantas business rewards and the credit card we use, any expenses that get spent on that card through any of the staff, the points go over to the Qantas business rewards portal. And by being a, a business logged in for that, when we book tickets with Qantas, you get a 10% discount. And so the reason, nothing's free, everyone. And Qantas are obviously got a mailing list of businesses and they sell, you know, get promotions all the time. Oh, I'll get your business insurance or, you know, everything's a racket. Nothing's ever free. And there's a reason for everything. But the cool thing is like when the girls fly down to Newcastle from Queensland or like when we went to Perth, the tour, I tell the team, I'm like, I've requested an upgrade for you. 
it was like 10,000 points, did it through Qantas business, business Rewards. The points are there, like may the odds ever be in your favor. And on one flight, Nath got business and someone else didn't. And yeah. so, but we're not wagging the business dog by Qantas points. Like I don't even pay for um, the ATO tax bills through the Qantas card, even though if, you know, Amex, they call all the time, oh, hey, Glenn, we're the account manager. Have you thought about paying your, um, your tax bill through the Amex? And I'm like, no, I haven't. And I don't want to because I pay a surcharge. Sure, with the card that I've got, you get 0.5 of, you, you get half a point per ATO spend. Mm. But I just, I don't care for this crap. Like I'll get, well, yeah. the getting's good, but I'm not going out of my way to get points in that way. And I don't know, I just don't want to pay surcharge to get a few points. But in finishing, I'm just going to share the screen here with you, John. When we look at how much points are worth, I'm just on Finder website and they did an analysis. So realistically, when it comes to points, the best value you'll get is using them for upgrades or classic reward seats with Qantas. Like the absolute best value. You can see here, Finder have said it costs Sydney to re Los Angeles return, premium to business upgrade, 98,000 points. That's $94 per 1,000 points, right? And the value is $9,000, right? But if you go down to see this at the bottom here, Bunnings gift card or a Hoyt's digital gift card, yeah. Bunnings gift card, 12,000 points, $50 voucher, it's only $4 per thousand points. Yeah, so you'd be, you'd yeah. pretty much have to be spending, yeah. if it's a one for one, $12,000 to get yeah. $50 worth of Bunnings <laughs> credit. No, thanks. I'll get on with my life. They don't market it that way. No. So I just wanted to spend this time. Don't get caught up in the, in the heebie-jeebie points hype stuff because it really, unless you're flying lots and me and the team, like we fly a lot. I had accrued over a million points over the years. I just now using them with upgrades and all that stuff. It's there, whatever. But the difference is I'm not running my life around points. You know, yeah. it's public knowledge, you know, in the AFR that, you know, this business here, I think it turns over, you know, over well over a million dollars. Like we do have a bit of volume happening. So we are collecting these points. But for the average punter, and if you don't want to do it without a credit card, like just get on with your life. Yeah, and I think the message is clear and, and it, it should be logical, but not everyone follows logic is if you're going to spend it, great, get some points along the journey. But if, you, if you're chasing points and, and spending uh, without thinking, then that's when you get yourself into trouble. And you ask anyone who, like, okay, and just finishing, if you've paid one cent of interest on your credit card in the last... 12 months or in the last month, there's a high chance you're spending more than what you earn and it's not a tool for you. You've just been caught out. Mm. Or your admin's trash. Or your admin's trash. And a lot of these cards, like the Amex one that we use for the business, like that's $450 a year yeah. as a fee. But I've taken the view for that simple admin with the staff members and extra cards and, you know, if we can upgrade points and seats with some of the the employees, I'm happy to pay that. Like as an admin thing, it's easy. Yeah, and I think the, the one 
I've got is sounds like it's a bit similar, similar fee, but you also get a return flight somewhere. So that eats into a lot of that figure mm. and I think uh, lounge visits or guest passes or something. Yeah, so if, if you're flying at least once a month or at least mm. once a quarter, like you're not a frequent flyer and that's okay, just get on with your life. All right. Well, that was a big discussion around Qantas points. But yeah, everyone, just chill out. It's okay if you don't use one. I I don't have a credit card in my own name and I don't use it for day-to-day Glenny expenses because I just don't care for it. Yeah, and you mentioned Qantas points. It might be virgin if you, you can go to the dark side if you need to. Yeah, <laughs> you really can. Steph said, I've been toying with the idea of changing my superannuation investment strategy to high risk for the next five years. My balance is slightly higher than average for my age, which is 32. Given my line of work, I'm not allowed to invest in shares the usual way. So thinking, is this the next, is this the next best thing? Has anyone done this with success stories? So, well, there's actually a couple of layers to this question. Mm. Do you want some initial comments on this, John? Do you want to give some initial comments on this? Okay. First of all, well done. Uh, your balance is slightly higher than the average for that age. I, that's great. I don't think we're comparing ourselves too much, but that's just an observation that she's created. So that that's good. Changing the strategy to high risk for the next five years. As someone in my 20s and 30s, I was probably always going high risk because I could lose it and start all over again if I needed to um, and without drastic effects, whereas someone closer maybe to, to retirement age, personally, I'd be I'd be going the, just that little bit more conservative. So that's probably my take on those two areas. Um, she's not allowed to invest in shares. So can she put more into super or go to high risk? I'm, at that age, again, personally speaking, I'd be saying, right, at 32, um, I'm probably not going to add any more than I need to, but I just change the strategy. I don't actually mind going high risk. Yeah, so a couple of things there. Someone might be thinking, why wouldn't she be allowed to invest in shares? Well, she could be a politically exposed person, number one. She could be working for a big four uh, consulting who might work with top listed ASX companies and there's a conflict so she can't own shares. What there might be a way around is, you know, if you're consulting to Telstra, for example, and you're one of their lawyers or high up in in that world and, you know, sure, you can't hold Telstra shares direct, but if she's investing via her superannuation, well, she'll be holding Telstra shares indirectly. So with that same vein, I would probably propose that she looks into maybe some managed funds or ETF because then she hasn't got direct personal exposure. Um, That could be a way around those type of conflicts. The second thing is high risk for the next five years. I mean, what happens at age 37? I'm not sure. She's 32 at the moment. Maybe she'll be out of the current job, for example, or maybe she thinks at 37, you have to do less risk. This is... This question's really good because there's so many complexities in three short sentences. Sorry, would you say at 37, she might say, well, she's just put a line in the sand for five years and then reassess maybe more so than the age being 37. Let's change the strategy. I don't know. Yeah, I'm very vocal on if you're under 50 years of age or even if you're 50 years old right now, 
providing you understand the investment options, provided you understand asset allocations and that investing in shares needs to be at least five years, I honestly don't believe once you understand some basic concepts, I think if you're under 50 years old, there is no reason why your asset allocation in super should be less than growth or high growth, like as simple as that. Uh, Get advice, I'm wrong and all that stuff. But yeah, just because you can't touch the money anyway, like you really can't. So why wouldn't you let it work its thing? So what I did, and then, you know, and, and as a second kind or a third part to her question, changing the investment strategy, I'm not allowed to invest in shares. I mean, is she saying, because I'm not investing in shares, I'll just change my super to high growth. Like there's kind of two things here. Like, what do you, does that mean you're going to just salary sacrifice extra to super than invest in your own name? Because I think if you've got money left over to grow your wealth, well, it's either buying a property, salary sacrifice to super or an investment account or an investment bond in your own name. I suppose I read between the lines and said, Steph's got a a fetish for shares. So if we can't do it in outside of super, let's ramp up what's in super. Yeah, totally. Okay. So what I want to do, Steph has said, has anyone had some success stories? Well, I've had plenty of success stories with investing in higher risk, aka higher growth, getting a higher return. But I want the numbers to do the story. Now, can you see on this Google Doc John, um, the second last page, I've run some comparisons and I want to walk everyone through these things. And what I want to first say is doing financial projections on online calculators, they are very hard to get a really good result. When you're doing financial projections, everything is incumbent on the inputs. So any projections or modeling, it's all got to do with the assumptions that you use. So what I've done is, and it makes it even harder uh, because I don't have financial planning uh, modeling software anymore. And I called James Millard from Sufficient Funds, you know, half hour ago, John, and he was about to step into a meeting. So he didn't have time to to do it on X plan for me. But (laughs) what I've done, I've used a basic calculator with an 8% return over 30 years and a 5% return over 30 years, right? So a couple of things. We know Steph can't touch the money for the next 30 years. So provided she understands how things work and Steph, if you're new to our world, my book, Sort Your Money Out and Get Invested, chapter five and six, if you only read those two chapters, you'll be a professional in superannuation asset allocation and portfolio theory You know, within two chapters. But I've assumed she has $100,000 in her super today. I've assumed that we're going to put this in for 30 years. I've assumed that there is $10,000 superannuation contribution going into her fund each year. I've taken the tax out. So it's $8,500 per year because the super contributions tax is 15%. And then I've just said, we'll just call it $700 a month net that is going into the super fund. I've also each 12 months increase that $700 by 3%. So it's a real modest, you know, increase because we know the RBA want inflation in Australia to be 2 to 3%. I've selected that the interest rate and I've suggested that the compounding 
of the money is monthly. So once a month. So I've kept it really conservative. I've also jumped on, on that last page, John, you can see I've jumped onto a very popular Australian super fund. And one thing is, number one, update your freaking website. Like we're recording this at the end of June and it's got here annualized returns to June 30, 2022. Can we please get some flippant quarterly at least? Anyway, so if we look there, John, at the high growth option, since inception in the mid 90s, the fund has done 8%. So I've assumed an 8% return. And then you can see the conservative balanced option there, John. It says 5.6% conservative since inception. So all that to say, when we want an 8% return in a calculator, we have to assume inflation. So we have to we have to work out, well, what inflation number do we use? Like the RBA in Australia want to target 2 to 3%. I've used 3%. We have to assume some fees on the investment. I've assumed 0.5%. And this is a real complex part, which I've just had to kind of do a bit of bush maths. We have to assume tax at the superannuation rate of 15%. But the annoying thing is, remember, the tax is only going to be on the earnings because I've already assumed 15% being taken off the contribution amount. So it's really annoying. So I've just assumed half a percent tax. So this is as kind of close as I can get to be kind of a bit conservative. You know, we know inflation's around 7% at the moment. So I've just used long-term target of 3%. So all that to say, in the interest rate or the percentage return column on your online calculator, to get that 8% return, I've put in an interest rate of 4% because it's taken off 3% for inflation, half a percent for fees, half a percent for tax. So that's 4% that I've taken off this projection because we want the projection for 30 years to be in today's dollars. So it actually makes sense. When you hear people say, oh, I invest $100 a month and in 20 years will be worth $5 million, that's in future dollars. It means nothing. Don't listen to that crap. They probably haven't assumed inflation. They probably haven't even assumed any type of tax. So we all need to chill out with these projections. And all this is to say, this is why I say, how much do you need for retirement? As much as possible. So, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I'm just a lot no, going, going on here. You're going well. And I think a lot's going to change over the journey, isn't it? Performance, your life, your lifestyle required amounts to retire on and live and how many mm. kids and all these other things. And the book, The Psychology of Money, have you read that, John? Mm, I don't think I want, I, I, I want you to read it. It's, it's really good. The author talks about allowing a margin of error. So like planning your life, not based on a 10% retirement return. Well, can you live on 5% return and anything else is a bonus? <laughs> like not running on the line. So all that to say, 4% return, which is the real return of the 8% that we're targeting for a high growth portfolio. The future value of that portfolio at $100,000 today, $700 a month, not accounting for pay rises, not accounting for putting extra money in, just really conservative, is $1 million, $1,039,000 basically. Now, we go the other side and of that, you know, just under $1.1 million, or call it a million dollars, the total investment return is $539,000. Mm-hmm. 
and you've put basically 400,000 of your own money in on top of that initial balance of 100,000. The real return, and what I might do, I might put a screenshot in here and I'll put it in our Dropbox and I'll get Rach to um, put a link in the show notes just for what I'm looking at here so people can um, can see it. And Rach, just keep it in the Dropbox archive location or something like that. When we want, so that's for a high growth portfolio. If we want to go to the conservative portfolio and go, okay, what does 5% return do? Well, we need to do the same. We need to take away inflation of 3%. We need to take away fees and taxes combined at 1%. So five take away four, guess what, friends? It's 1%. So in the same calculator, I've put 1% interest rate. The total interest earned or the total return on that 1% in today's dollars is only $91,000. So real today's dollars as best that I can get in a five minute dicking around on an online calculator is for Steph, a $448,000 difference in real money in 30 years time. It's a lot. Yeah, my lesson is over. (laughs) Steph, I bet when you put this in, you didn't know you were going to get a full financial planning session and a statement of advice live. Yeah, well, she's not. So there's that. But all that to say, if you're under age 50, you've got at least 10 years before you can access the money. You need to, for your own financial future, firstly, read chapters five and six of my book. So at least you've got some type of understanding or knowledge. Two, look at your current super fund, see what you're already invested in. And three, really ensure that you're in a growth or at least a high growth portfolio. Because in real today's dollars, and if Steph turns 60 tomorrow, and it was at the end of the 30 years, in 2023, based on the inputs, she would have $450,000 more. And this is conservative. It will probably be a little bit more. Big difference, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. Now, we need to take a break and... We'll be back after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back, my friends. What is up? Uh, look, 
community segment of the week brought to you by sky.com.au forward slash MMM. That's Sky Wealth. Make sure you have got one of your financial foundations sorted and that is your life and income insurance. Don't do any of this extra investing. Don't do any of this salary sacrifice to super. Don't do any of this other stuff until you got your foundation sorted first. You need to get out of consumer debt. You need to have an emergency fund. You need to get your insurances sorted and Sky can help. 15-minute conversation, no cost, and I'll point you in the right direction. So we asked you top tips for starting a business. Jess said, mates rates do not exist. That's a good one. If you've got a friend who's just started their business, support them. Don't Mm. ask for cheaper. It's so easy to do though, isn't it? Especially when they start out. Yeah. Don't be a scab off your friends. (laughs) Andrew said, don't just do it to be your own boss. Yeah. And often, John, a lot of time where people start businesses, when it all washes up, if they're not strategic and all that, they'll end up earning less than what they would if they just went and got a job. But also with the extra level of risk and stress that they carry and all the soft dollars and the soft time of accounting and record keeping that they have to carry. Yep, absolutely. Tim, not a fan. If you want a life, don't. Mm. Uh, Ina or Ina? Uh, invest in a business coach, have a business plan and a marketing plan. And, and that's a very good one. Uh, what do you think about a business coach? Yeah, I mean, probably not from day one because you want to- Fail first. Well, yeah, you want to kind of get out there and get some <laughs> yeah. money. And you want to sort of get a feel for it yourself and get a feel for what's working, what's not. Yeah, I've never, oh, actually, I'll, I'll tell a lie. I actually did have a third party kind of coach that I did have meetings with and- you know, would have a an hour a month or something just and he, he was six hundred dollars an hour and it was just a really good third party in my industry, senior, and it was of immense value. I know businesses that spend probably twenty thousand dollars a year in the you know, those cult programs <laughs> like <laughs> and they've got great success. Um, but ordinarily, you know, invest in a business coach If you do need some external sounding board, absolutely. I I, I think that's important, whether it is informal or a formal cult program. um, (laughs) Look, I think, I I agree. I think you need external assistance in the form of a mentor, whether Mm. that's a business coach or just someone that's out there that's been there and done it, then I think it, it, it helps a lot. Totally. Joe said, probably not popular opinion, but things don't need to be super professional and cost a bomb at the start. Start with minimal overheads and build. I mean, that's fine. But, you know, if you've started a business and, I don't know, it's a massage place, for example, mm. you know, I want to level, I want to clean <laughs> like this. I, I get what she's saying. I'm just saying, you know, there is this hygiene factor. <laughs> I think it depends on the industry for sure. Totally. Matt Matt says, if possible, don't quit your day job until you're making a livable wage off it. Cash flow is so important early on. And and that's a really good tip. Sometimes we all want to go gung-ho and just drop our our day job because we hate it. And and now we're just going to give it everything we've got. And it's it's all in then, isn't it? Um, Mm. So it's uh, maybe dipping the toes in. I like that way of doing things. But again, depends on industry. Some, Some industries, you just can't do that. Like you can't just half open a restaurant. Yeah. And when I left my job as a financial advisor and started my own business, I could only be licensed through one type of, I couldn't have two licenses. So yeah, Mm. if possible, yeah, 
try and do it on the side. Tash, always have your taxes set aside. We're nearly 20 years with our own business and the ATO's chunk is what has screwed the majority of those uh, that we know who have failed. Have a good personal buffer for when things are tight. You can't succeed without a plan. Write it down and revisit often. Yeah, that's awesome. Good old ATO. Rajan, validate your product or service, soft open, some mates, rates, tests, runs, honest feedback from strangers, etc. something contextually appropriate, of course, could save the pain of a massively expensive and painful pivot that doesn't work out. Passion alone won't do it. The product or service has to be good. The market also got to want it and at a price that lets you be profitable. Yeah, and Jay said, focus on making sure there is serious demand for what you're selling and make the product superior to anything or anyone else. Yeah, that's um, that's all good advice. And yeah, we'll try and do some more uh, small business bonus episodes. Like we did get rid of the My Millennial Business podcast just because, you know, the demand for those type of things in Australia, the market's just too small. But I yeah. do love talking about business and I might do some bonus episodes on that. And I've got one planned actually that I need to record uh, so thanks for that, everyone, and into housekeeping. And as we bounce out of this community segment of the week, speaking of Sky Wealth, tonight, Tuesday, the 11th of July, 2023, at 7 to 8.30 p.m., Phil Thompson from Sky Wealth is running a webinar. It's called Beyond Super. Is the insurance in your super fund enough? And if you want to jump on there and watch that live and ask questions, they answer a heap of live questions. If you're listening to this after Tuesday the 11th, uh, we'll put a, a link in the show notes of the replay on YouTube. But information is power, knowledge is power, blah, blah, blah. So thank you so much. And there's also a link in the show notes if you want to sign up for that webinar. We'll bounce out of this segment now and get on with it. And finally, in our housekeeping segment, and apologies, it's a longer episode today, but whatever, we're here now. Fortnightly newsletter, we hate spam, so we don't actually create it. So what I've done in the business with the team, we've just decided, John, like we're not doing different funnels. If you click investing, you get 50 emails a day with investing things and upsells to this and upsells to that. We're literally just going back to basics, one fortnightly customized email with a message from me at the start, some interesting thing that's happening just to bring it around in circles and keep everyone informed. And a lot of you like emails and yeah, so there's a link in the show notes if you want to sign up to that email. Um, it's another way that we like to support what we do here because, you know, we've got some sponsors for that now. Not going to be big and ugly, but yeah, it's just another thing that we are doing. Love it. And finally... My Millennial Journal, if you want to get your thoughts out of your head, My Millennial Journal, My Money Journal. I forget what it's called. <laughs> but anyway. It's a bloody journal. It's a bloody journal. Uh, just email the team if you don't can't find the link, but it'll be on the website and far out too much housekeeping. I'm going to keep the housekeeping to three things. Retire Right Podcast, the My Millennial Daily, it's happening. Right, John, there's a question Thanks. here from Adam. If I was weighing up whether to sell an investment property or not, what type of questions or stats could I ask my property manager to give me more data to help educate myself? I mean, I wouldn't ask property manager, but sure, you can say, look, am I on the right rent here or whatever, but <laughs> yeah. John, talk to us about this because I think you commented in the Facebook group on this guy's post. I think 
Yeah. Going to the property manager, their specialty is getting tenants in at a desired rate that they think it's worth and, and based on the supply and demand and everything else. So that that's all great, but I think they would refer you to their sales team and the sales team would give you some sort of appraisal to say, look, this is what we think it'll, it, it's worth. Um, this is when the tenancy is up because I think that's an important one. I was chatting to someone this morning about that. It's like, well, okay, you're your lease ends on your investment property in December, we need to reverse engineer and say, right, July, August is when we might launch it so that by the time it settles, the tenant has moved out or, or the end of their lease. But the problem that you face there is if it's uh, if it's tenanted, you might have trouble with inspections and is it clean and, and always on to the tenant about making sure it's uh, it's ready for the open home and c- that can always be a bit of a pain. So so for Adam, I'd be looking at that those logistics first and that's why he he might be wanting to talk to his property manager. But from sort of data point of view and, and stats, whether to sell or not, I think I mentioned in there, I can't quite remember, but I think I said we should want to sell the property, not have to. So if we want to sell it, it's usually because we want to pay down our principal place of debt or we're getting closer to our retirement or a lifestyle stage or we just simply want to get out of a a more speculative market or, or the property's done its time in that particular cycle and we'll put it into something that we think is going to perform better. So the, I would be looking personally without even going to the property manager is say, well, what's it done since I've bought it? If I've had it for 10 years and it's gone up 100 grand, that's $10,000 a year. Is that good, bad or ugly compared to what my expectations were or if I went and bought another type of dwelling or in another location? So looking at the history of it gives you an idea as to not not guarantee the future for performance, but it's a really good starting point. And, and back to that conversation this morning, it was like, okay, it's gone up like 70 grand in eight years or something. Like it's just wasn't worth holding on to. We'd just be kicking the can down the road trying to get some growth out of it. So that's probably the main thing is growth and cash flow. What is it? Is it costing me anything before tax and after tax? And if it is, and it's not making me money, then it's probably uh, time to cut the cord in a, in a lot of cases. What were you talking about the conversation this morning? Because I mentioned before, I was having a conversation with a person this morning. Right. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. And, and just on that, um, you know, if you do find yourself in a situation like Adam and you want a third party sounding board, and I'll, I'll advertise John's services here for a second. He does a clarity call. You'll get about an hour on the phone with John. Like, he doesn't give a crap if you sell the property or keep it. Well, he might, but, you know, he's just going to be like, oh, it's, I think you're crazy or, yep, I think you're on the right back. So if he just wants some sanity from someone who lives in property, don't excuse the pun, 350, Google John Pigeon clarity call. Or, or 220. Yeah, look, <laughs> <laughs> so... Look, for those who are in the Facebook group, someone the other day, and I'll make sure I delete the post so you can't see who it was in there. I'll hide their name. They're like, oh, we want a clarity call. Um, can I get a clarity call for $220? I go to John's website and it's now 350 That was a post from 2019. It's a spectrum. I- if we said John's clarity calls are free, they would sell out. You wouldn't be able to do any work because you'd be doing them. Even if they were $200, the amount of listeners we've got, and I'm sorry, but this is just the way that the world works, 
There is a price on there that makes it beneficial for John. I was at a lawyer the other day, hour for his time, $440. Like if you want to pay for professional services, you've got to pay for professional services. Yeah. And it's not a call to sell my products or other services either. It's dedicated to that. And if you ask questions about my services, I'll answer them, but I don't sit on the last half hour to talk about what else we can do for you. But yeah. And it's probably been that that way for the last couple of years at that price. I don't think I've put it up for a bit. No. And just a (laughs) side note, if the individual is listening, um, thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you for being part of the community. I totally get that you need some help, but- if you've got an income like you've got and you've got that money in your savings account or in cash that you fill out our form on the website and I think we said go to John, I'm not sure, you can afford $350. I'm just going to leave it there. If you've got a high, high income and you're working in the city and you've got over six figures in savings, you can pay $350. And I'm saying that with... Don't be a tight ass. And I'm saying, like, I'm just saying, yeah. value people's services and respect the price. We only give gifts away when people legitimately need help and are asking, not when they're going hard on this, you know, shakedown thing. But, <laughs> but uh, I love you if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, no, looking um, very uh, creative to try and find it, something like that as well. I'd probably do the same. What, try and save bloody 100 bucks when you've got more money than freaking most people? (laughs) No, no. And no to that as well. Mm. Evie. Evie asks, hi, first time posting. Me and my husband own a house and if we sell it, we have five to 550 in cash. But at the moment, we have a loan for $300,000. Just wondering what you would do. A, sell it and buy a house with our cash. Two, Keep the house and get a loan for an investment property. Wow, this sounds like chalk and cheese, but anyway, we're here for it. We are stuck on what to do as our loan isn't much for our house. It is in a very good area and our neighbors are selling their houses from $550 a unit to $850 for a house with a pool. All right. This is, yeah, look, number one, if you need to make a, if you need to upgrade your house to get a bigger house, do it. Um, but... Like if you've had no plans to move and you've saw and you've seen that houses are selling for a good price and you got a bit of equity, like I'm not turning over my life just to for the sake of it. What do you reckon, John? Yeah, I think back to that clarity call, I think it's one of those for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it, it's a little bit of um, what was uh, the question before from um, Adam. From Adam. So yeah. Adam says, do I sell the property or not? We've got a, yeah, you're right. Like looking at, is it my ideal home, ideal location for the next 20 years? I'm not just selling because the prices are good and this is what I can get for it. Where else are you going to live? Like you've got to buy somewhere else to live. I'm presuming it is your principal Mm. place of residence here. So if you sell it, you've mentioned option A, buy a house with our cash. My calculations (laughs) is that you'd only have 250 grand once you've, paid down the loan of 300. Is that what you're reading? Yeah, unless unless there's other cash that isn't mentioned in the question. Okay. So if you can go and sell, sell your house and take that money and couple it with the money you've already got and go and buy something in a desired location that's an upgrade for you and your lifestyle and have no mortgage or less mortgage, then go for it. Absolutely mm. go for it. 
however, if you just if it's just short term emotional thinking, oh, we could get eight fifty for it or a million or whatever, but we haven't thought about where we're going to go and live and is it a, going to be an upgrade? Then why are we doing it? Option B, keep the house and get a loan for an investment property. That's how we build portfolios, isn't it? We take the equity out. We can see there's some equity there. We've got manageable bad debt on our principal place. We continue to pay that down. We, we get some equity out and go and buy an investment property somewhere that, that suits our strategy and our lifestyle. So look, it for me, it's, it's, it's option B unless we're saying with option A, it's going to upgrade our lifestyle. Yeah, and that's why A and B, honestly, they're completely separate and you can't conflate the two because your house that you live in isn't an investment. No. So I would be stepping back. Are we happy in the next five years to stay where we're at? You've said it's a very good area. You know, there's a house with a pool in the same area for 850. If you're happy in your, I'm assuming it's a unit, if you're happy, next five years, awesome, forget it. Let's build wealth elsewhere, whether it is a property, super, salary sacrifice, investment portfolio. But if it is that legitimate, oh, you know what? We are feeling a bit small in a unit and we would like a house. Well, go down that road and let the cars fall as they may. It may be that you can't afford to get a house with a pool for eight fifty with your current income and your equity. So that's a six hundred and something thousand dollar loan. So we basically would double our mortgage if we got the eight fifty place, put the two hundred of equity in it ish. We need a six fifty mortgage ish. You've currently got a three hundred mortgage ish. You know, you might have to sell that place to upgrade the house to live in and that's a lifestyle play. If you've got more money that we don't know about and your income's really high, you may be able to just put that extra cash into a home to live in, keep the current unit as an investment property if it is a good asset. So I don't want Evie to get stuck because I feel like these two issues are being conflated and they should not be. But also, I'm just a dickhead on a microphone <laughs> in Merriweather right now. So two you want. All right, one last question. Sasha, hi, MMM. My parents came into a little bit of money this year and I found out today my dad put $20,000 into his super. He's 63. This is his first time working for someone and he's always been a business owner, so he's paid his own super the last 30 years or so. I don't think he realized about the 27500 limit. He's still working full-time. Is the 27500 including employee contributions or separate? Yeah. So 101 super lesson. Mm. Um, each year, each individual has a concessional contribution cap of 27500 Your employer puts, as it, you know, a couple of weeks ago, 1st of July, 11% of your salary into super each year. Now, part of that, the SG contribution is made up in the concessional contribution cap. If dad put $20,000 in, well, let's actually do some, you know, we'll just say, I don't know, we'll say dad's on 80 grand a year times 11%, that's 8,800. Take away, sorry, 
27,500 take away 8,800. So he's got 18,700 left at the cap. So if he put that 20 grand in his super and then at the end of the financial year submitted an intent to claim with his super fund, that would flick that $20,000 contribution to be tax deductible in his own name and the super fund would take 15% tax off that, which means that he has effectively put that contribution towards his concessional contribution cap of 27,500. So we know that 27,500 take away 8,800 from his employer means that his cap for that year is 18,700. However, in recent times, there has been a carry forward of unused concessional contributions legislation. If he put $8,000 a year in his super fund from his employer for the last five years, in theory, $18,700, which is his unused cap per year times five, he's got $93,000 of concessional contributions that he can use. Now, if he doesn't elect for it to be a concessional contribution, he can't claim it on his tax return and it goes in as a non-concessional contribution of which you get $110,000 per year to put into super through the back door. So it's that money is being taxed in your own name, goes into the super fund and the super fund does not take 15% tax off that, nor can you claim it on your own tax return. However, however, for example, each year he had been capping out his cap of 27500 a year. And this year that he put $20,000 in on top of his employee contribution, he is going to be over $1,300. So what he needs to do is when he fills out the intent to claim form, tell them that this year as a personal contribution, I put $20,000 in However, I only want $18,700 of that to be a concessional contribution. So the $1,300 balance will stay as a non-concessional contribution and go towards the $110,000 cap. So <laughs> so he can do that after the fact? Yeah. Yeah, he do it after the financial year. Yeah. Yeah. So he'll be fine. But mm. what he needs to do, Sasha, he needs to listen to the Retire Right podcast. Because there was an episode recently about retirement and superannuation 101 and he will froth on it. If he's got a kink for putting money in his super, oh, he will froth on that froth all it. day long. Good one, Sasha. Great. Uh, it, it's really good that she's looking out for dad as well. Yeah. And like I was just thinking like we do this crap every day. Like that was a mouthful to explain <laughs> Like if you've got a super account with hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line, you're looking to retire, you've got to listen to retire right and you've got to get financial advice because I'm at the stage now that, you know, I'm a former financial advisor because I've been out of the game for so long at the coalface, I now know enough to be dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like so wild. So I'll just encourage yeah. anyone not to be afraid to introduce your parents to that retire right podcast. Self-educate. Yep. And at, at worst case, you just get to ask good questions of your financial planner when you sit down with them by just tuning into a podcast like that. Yeah, absolutely. But there you go. Well, we've had a pretty big chat today. That's been a big chat, but it's been a good one. 
We think, it, anyway. Well, it's been all right. Well, Johnson. All right. Until next it, time. You keep it real. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch you guys soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you found value of this episode, who can you forward it to? And if you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening this deep. You must think it's half decent. And if you are still listening and you think it's half decent and you haven't given us a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, we would appreciate it immensely. All right. See you guys. Bye. Bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 